Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started on the we ain't gonna stop. Oh, she made me feel like a god. That's when it got wheels off. Elizabeth Nelson is all the things. And she's brilliant at all of them. Not fair. Not fair, man. Elizabeth Nelson is a songwriter and a journalist and a TV writer, and she does all sorts of great um, activism. She works in the field of education policy. She has a day job writing about guitar specs for Fender. She's written for all sorts of big publications, and her band, Paranoid Style, is really cool. They are... um, a beloved indie rock band, smart as a whip, great music. She's just, uh, she's kind of the perfect wheels off guest. I'm so glad that I was introduced to her and she was willing to do this because I feel like the information and um, the hot takes, I feel like the advice that she has during the course of this interview, it's great stuff. You're going to love it. You're going to get so much out of this. She had a couple of, of moments during the conversation where she said something in a way that I'd never heard anybody else even come close to, and I was floored. I was really, um, really glad that she was willing to appear on Wheels Off. So please welcome Elizabeth Nelson. Welcome to Wheels Off, Elizabeth Nelson. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Rhett. I am so excited to be here. Uh, for the edification of our listeners, from where are you joining? I am joining from the city that calls itself both the home of Big Tobacco and the city of Medicine, Durham, North Carolina. Wow. Now, weren't you D.C.-based for a while? Yes, and technically still kind of DC-based, and I won't go into all the convoluted reasons why, um, but about seven years ago, um, my husband, Tim, and I decided to move down to Durham, um, which is where we record music. Um, That's how we kind of fell in love with the city, Um, but we kind of split our time between DC and Durham right now, um, and that's been really fun, Um, but yes, we spend a great amount of time in Durham, which is really, really very cool, and um, I can't recommend the city enough. So that is where I am. Seconded. It's got a thriving music scene, right? Big time. Yeah. Merge Records is right down the street. And then like um, Mitch Easter's Fidelitorium studio is not too far from here. There's a couple of great studios, not even, you know, 10 minutes from where we live that we record at. Um, You know, um, the reason why we actually came down here is because, well, what not, not he wasn't the reason why, but the reason why we initially came down here is because we 
have recorded a couple records with Brian Paulson, um, who's the ace producer um, who did, you know, Spiderland and Wilco Records, early Wilco, Uncle Tupelo, um, Super Chunk Records, you know. Um, so we kind of asked him if he wanted to work with us. And so and he's in he's in Durham now, too, but he was in Carborough at the time. Uh, and so we started coming down here to do music and um that was really like my first introduction to actually spending time in the research triangle area. And it's awesome. It's really, really cool. And there's definitely a cool scene and, you know, you'll wander around and see some, some big indie names. I won't dox anybody, but uh, you know, <laughs> I've seen a couple people. Um, okay. So my traditional first proper question is one that n- I feel like normally I have an idea what answer I'm going to get, but, uh, but asking you, Okay. I feel like I have no idea what answer you're going to give me. What creative project are you working on at the moment? And how does okay. it like light you up? Okay. I, I'm so glad you asked this question. Um, and it is a confusing answer, I know, because I'm a multi-hyphenate, which makes it really hard to put me in a box. Um, but from a musical perspective, um, we just put out a record in August called For Executive Meeting. Um, and so we've done a modest promotional cycle around that. And um, we don't do what um, I saw Chuck Prophet recently referred to as the treadmill of death, which I believe is somebody else's term of art. But um, basically, write, record, tour, tour more, repeat. Um, we basically do write, record, uh, and then maybe play a show. Uh, here or there, which we have, you know, decided to call rare public appearances because that's exactly what they are. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so we, we released this record in August and now I am about a month and a half into writing the next record, which we will record in February. So it's, uh, it's right on target, I think, maybe a little behind on the usual paranoid style recording schedule. And the new record is great. How long was it in the can before it dropped? It's okay. So um, I know you talk to, you know, principally musicians more or less full time for the podcast. So I'm sure that you have heard horror stories about supply chain and um, albums being held up for months, if not years at a time, which is... um, it's rare in this kind of, you know, fast moving information economy uh, to think about, you know, that kind of bottleneck. So anyway, we had started talks with Bar None, which is our label, um, about a year ago to the day almost. So November 2021, we were trying to get on the calendar and um, one of the guys who runs bar none was like you really really need to manage your expectations as to when this record is coming out. Um, so because it was vinyl, you know, like, let's think about maybe November 2022. So we were like, that's a long time because it had already been recorded, like, since maybe August of 2021. And as I say, you know, like, we just do the right record thing. Um, but anyway, we we sort of just said, fine, whatever. And um, then in, like, May of 2022, uh, Mark wrote and said, hey, the vinyl's here. Uh, so let's put the record out. And um, we were like, oh... Well, okay, we had kind of been planning on November at this point, but I guess we'll pivot and kind of put it out in August, um, which was really the latest that we possibly could, uh, given that, you know, the vinyl was just sitting around. Um, so we, we put it out in August. So it was probably, it was probably 
a year to the day then um, that it had been in the can. Um, but we, you know, had this somewhat, I guess, luck that it, the supply chain worked in the opposite direction. Um, so yes, so I would say about a year. Uh, so, uh, given your multi-hyphenate nature, I imagine mm-hmm. that you've got you know more than one thing working at any given moment, and 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 it's funny for Wheels Off. I do speak to all sorts of you know writers, novelists, poets, yeah. c- comics, and you're basically you're all you're all those things almost. Like, <laughs> <laughs> how many things are you working on, and how how do you balance it all, and what drives you to go from one thing to another thing? Um. Well, I. I think um, I'm kind of driven by doing work. Um, you know, I I have a day job. Um, I do do journalism and other writing, um, but I also am a copywriter for Fender Guitars. That's kind of how I, um, you know, make a paycheck. I guess um, not that you know. I don't make a modest income from doing everything else as well. I don't want people to think that I'm you know starving or anything. Um, but yeah, I mean. Um, I do a lot of journalism and that's, that's really fun. I do a lot of music journalism and um, right now I've actually got like a couple of pieces that I just turned in um, that I think will be published. If I'm lucky, there's a piece about Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska that I'm hoping will come out uh, soon. Um, and then I did a piece for, I, I think I'm allowed to talk about this. Maybe I won't mention the the book, but it's a book uh, and my stories about uh a chrissy hind pretenders live show in 1983 so a couple little writing projects and always thinking about new things to write about because um you know i i yeah i I think like probably like a lot of the guests on your show even if they just focus on one thing you know just being driven by doing work it's it's hard um to not constantly want to be doing the next thing um and so like I I definitely think that um, if I wasn't working, then I would probably get really nervous and and really ill at ease. And so, and I don't do much else either. Like I said, we don't tour or anything. So I have to keep busy somehow. Do you ever get that um, sense that you are being like, whenever I try to do something that isn't um, sing in a band based, you know, named after a train wreck, it's, it, I t- I get I feel like at least I'm getting the stay in your lane, yeah. From some you know corners, do you get that? Because I, and I wonder like mm-hmm. even what lane would it be that people want you to stay in? Because there are so many lanes for you. It's yeah. I mean, I think that that it does confuse people, and um, and and I definitely think that there are people who would prefer that I just did the journalism thing or did the band thing um or you know somehow just dwelled in anonymity forever <laughs> um and and yeah and I and I think like you know like I've I've actually had people kind of say maybe not this rudely but pretty close like I I don't know what you do. Uh, I, I don't know how to quite classify it. And um, I think that's weird. I, I definitely think it's weird. And I certainly think that, like, especially for people who are, you know, doing creative work, um, if you're not kind of diversifying, then, um, you know, it might be really sort of difficult to, um, I'm going to say this, like, I, I think that, that, you know, it, it can be really, really difficult to make like a living wage and have an income um, 
if you're only like, you know, doing a band where you're touring constantly. And I was thinking about this this morning because, you know, like I like bands that are way more popular than we are, you know, fronted by people who are much smarter than I am, who actually have infrastructure behind them can't break even touring at this point. So, you know, I, I feel lucky that I'm able to have a couple of things that I'm kind of good at. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I also feel like, you know, you probably talk to lots of people who, um, I don't know why I'm making all these assumptions about who you're talking to, but, um, but that, you know, you'll probably meet a, you know, musician who also is writing a book or a novelist who, you know, is like a really decent, you know, TikTok celebrity or something, um, which I really hope you have met that person who is the novelist TikTok celebrity. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's, but I do think that, you know, to answer your question in a sort of totally roundabout way, yes, I think a lot of people don't know what to do with me. Um, and, uh, and I guess that's just going to have to be my, my cross to bear for the time being. Are you friends with John Darniel out there? Um, I, I wouldn't say we're friends and that's not because we don't like each other. We just haven't had the opportunity to really get to know each other. We're, we're sort of social media acquaintances. Um, I admire what he does enormously. And again, you know, obviously he's mountains goat, mountain goats guy, but he is, you know, quite an accomplished writer. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, um, I, I admire his music and his writing very much and, and, uh, and he does both very well. So I think it's possible. Uh, and, and definitely he's somebody who inspires me to be able to say, well, if, you know, if he can do it, so can I. And look, I'm not only going to ask you questions about the, the multi-hyphenate nature of this, but it really okay. does. It does interest me. And I, the, the one other angle I wanted to, to ask you about was I feel like there's a few musicians of whom I'm aware that, used to write or still write um, music criticism or yeah. whatever. Yes. And uh, like, I think of you, like Yola Tango started from that place. I know if, in fact, later on today, I'm going to be um, recording an interview with Anthony D'Amato, who's great and has a great new record out. And he's worked at Rolling Stone before among other places, you know, he's mm-hmm. written, he's written about music. And I just wonder to come at it from both sides, like to me as a musician, it seems like it makes sense because we love music. We, right. and I'm making assumptions about you too now, but I feel like when we're with our friends, we talk about music and what's good about it or what's what it means. So it, it seems obvious, but mm-hmm. I feel like the public has always had this perception that music journalists and musicians are on the opposite sides of some larger culture war or something. Mm-hmm. Do, mm-hmm. How do you balance that? How do you make peace with that? And what do you think that, how does one inform the other? Um, Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a funny thing because I, I don't think of them as being, um, you know, that far distance from each other. And I definitely know that, you know, there was a time where, uh, and I mean, I guess it still exists today where, um, you know, it was a mutual antagonism, you know, kill your idols, Robert Criscow, uh, you know, Lou Reed rivalries or whatever. And that's very romantic and very cool. And I, I love both Lou Reed and Robert Criscow. Um, and I love, you know, that song that Sonic Youth wrote about Robert Crisco. Um, but uh I I'm actually kind of surprised when people are like, well, how how do you do it? Like, how do you reconcile that tension? Because I I disagree. Um, I think it's a very useful uh 
set of tools to be able to understand how music is written, how music is recorded, um, you know, how to pay attention to lyrics in ways that you might not necessarily, if you're looking at it from a prose perspective. Um, and I'm not saying that music critics who do not play music are bad at their jobs or incapable of understanding how to write about music or dance about architecture or whatever you want to say. Um, but I, I think it's actually like a perfectly good marriage of, of, you know, ways of thinking about music and how to approach music. I think that criticism can also inform how I write music and how I think about music, not necessarily because critics are living in my head, although that is something that does happen sometimes. Um, and I have to really, really push those voices out. Um, but, and I think like for me personally, um, you know, when I think about writing a record review, and I don't like writing negative reviews. Um, I, I mostly just like to praise things that I think are good. I, I but um, you know, the best way to critique a record is to write what I objectively think is a better record. So I, I, I definitely think, and I, and it's like you know, yes, Ira Kaplan's a great example. Um, you know, Sean Nelson from um. What was his band called? Harvey Danger. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think he's doing much um, music criticism anymore, but he was like the editor at The Stranger for a while. I mean, there are plenty of people who are super smart and really good musicians who also write really beautifully about music. And um, so I, I definitely think that it's it's a natural twinning for me, although I, I can completely understand other people who are like, I you know, what you're doing is, is not helpful and, and kind of crazy. So, um, but yeah, I think it's perfectly natural. It's funny as you're describing it, I'm, I'm realizing that in so many other industries, it's completely accepted, right? Like mm -hmm. novelists are constantly writing, um, you know, books about uh, or reviews and mm -hmm. NFL football players will retire and become color commentators. It's you, yep. you're writing, you're talking about something, you know, when you were, little little kid and mm -hmm. you were sort of starting to imagine your future your adulthood your vocation mm -hmm. was it did you know that it would be a lot of things did you did you know it would be music was there an epiphany moment where you could uh, envision whatever this is now um i think for sure um there's i i'm just thinking about this today and thinking about coming on to do this interview um because I remember like I was a classically trained piano player and I took it very seriously. And I was, I thought I was very good and everybody <laughs> thought I was very talented. Um, and I remember I played a recital at the local library and afterwards I was interviewed for the local newspaper. Oh. And there's a quote that where I'm like, I'm definitely going to be a musician. And I remember that. And I like, I look back at it and I'm like, well, that was so arrogant. Um, <laughs> and um, because I also like always in the back of my mind and I, you know, I, I don't come from like tremendous privilege, although obviously I'm, you know, a classically trained piano player. So it wasn't like I was, you know, working in a salt mine at age four, but I was always kind of raised with the idea that it's like, well, yeah, you can go ahead and do that, but you still have to have a job, Bethy, you know, like you still have to do something, uh, that, that, you know, gives back to society or makes money or whatever. Um, and so I, I did always kind of think like, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely be a musician, but I also will have a job 
um, and I will do other things. And and I was kind of good at a couple of things. And so I never really knew how to quite pick the one to focus on too. Um, and so it, it, I mean, I lucked out that I also have like some pretty good reserves of energy because I can do a couple different things, um, you know, and, and work late and get up early and do stuff. Um, and so like, it's, it's, it hasn't yet fractured my brain too much to have like a couple of tracks running at the same time. Um, so, so yeah, I do think uh, that I, I definitely always kind of knew that I would probably be doing a bunch of stuff. Also, I can't make decisions. Like I can't pick anything. Like, um, so I, I, I definitely think that it would be hard for you. Like if you, you know, put a gun to my head and you're like, you have to pick one. I would just be like, pull the trigger. I, I can't decide. Um so <laughs> I I don't know. I, I might I might wonder if that's really true because so many of these things that you excel at are things that require constant decisions. Like, you know, you're trusting your instinct. What's the next note? What's the next word? What's the next, you know, movement in the piece you're writing? That kind of stuff. Yeah. You're deciding a lot of things quickly. That that's very fair. And I think I think you've identified something that maybe I, I was not able to, but I, I definitely think that you've you've pointed out something that I think is really important. Also, maybe um since I know this is a podcast about process, um, like <laughs> something that is very important to me is having deadlines. And so whether it's having a deadline for a story or going into the studio and making music, like we don't luxuriate um in the studio. We have about five days at most to put together a record and so you have to just commit and you know get on the ride and and go where it, it takes you and then it's over and that's a wonderful feeling and a terrifying feeling and then when it is over it's both wonderful and terrifying um because then it's like well what what's the next thing and um so yes, I do think you're right. I do think it's capable for me to make a decision and but but it definitely has to be under this kind of structure of like well it, it you know you you don't have any time to sit and waffle well you you just described a strategy that you use to get you know past um internally generated obstacles and you brought up earlier the idea that you've got these negative voices in your head that are shouting you down and shutting you down and i wonder if you could share with us some of the strategies you've figured out to get past those sort of internally generated obstacles um, for sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously just having to, to act is always very important. Um, I think that the second that you let doubt creep in, um, you could just become completely untied. So that's something that I really, really have to fight against myself. Um, and, you know, and, and there's plenty of doubt that is both exogenous and also coming, you know, from myself. Um, but I also like have taught myself that if I don't believe in what I am doing, then nobody else is going to care. So, um, and that, that took a long time, by the way. Um, I, I'm, I'm nothing but reservoirs of doubt. So I don't want people to think that I'm like sitting around thinking I'm great. Um, but it, it is like really, really true, I think. And, and I find this with like, you know, just watching other people and listening to them talk about their art. And if they don't seem like they care about it, I, as a fan or a critic, am not going to care. Um, and so I, I've tried to train myself to believe in whatever it is that I'm doing, because why on earth would I be wasting my time doing it? So, um, so it's, it, it is, it's, 
it's such a negotiation though. I mean, it's, it's so much of, um, you know, building oneself up and it's, it's really hard. So I'm not going to act like, you know, the experience of being alive and being a creative person is easy because it really isn't. But I think that, that just kind of, you know, trying to remind myself that like, I like what I'm doing and I enjoy it, but it seems like there's a few people out there who believe in it too. And embracing them and walking away from the people who have, you know, cast aspersions or doubt and not letting them poison me um, has been really, really helpful. Uh, again, not easy. Those are the people who can spoil your day with just a tweet, but um, <laughs> which I'm sure you encounter as well. Uh, but yeah. It's yeah, I, I do. And I try not to let it. The, um, I wondered about, and you must get this question all the time, but the, the band name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just, I feel like it dovetails into this, this, this topic of, um, mm -hmm. is, is that something that you've identified as, do you think of yourself as, as paranoid or is it like a sort of a comment on the indie rock, uh, pose? Um, yeah, I mean, so, so the, the band name comes from a, a historical essay from, I think, 1954. Um, and, and I always just kind of liked it. And, um, I, I do remember being told by somebody in the industry that it was a terrible band name. And I was like, <laughs> great, then we're definitely doing this. Um, and, uh, and yeah, but I, I, I often will once a day have some very high level paranoid thoughts. So I'm not, I'm not coming by it disingenuously. I don't necessarily have the paranoid style as Richard Hofstetter envisioned it, but I, I can engage in some pretty far out theories about like what I think, you know, a colleague is doing or, you know, what somebody's intent was when they cut me off on the highway or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think I live my gimmick. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, I, I think it's worked out pretty well. Um, I think people think it's cool. It looks cool on a shirt, um, which is so important. But, you know, I, I think it was Jeff Tweedy who said, like, in his memoir that, like, all band names are fundamentally very stupid. So I also can admit that it's probably a pretty stupid band name. There was a moment where Electra Records, when they signed us, tried to make us change our band name to the new 97s. I know. No. <laughs> but guys, the horse is out of the barn. <laughs> I know that the old is literally the worst marketing word you could think of. I mean, maybe yeah. par paranoid might be up there as well, but <laughs> whatever. It's good. Sometimes it, sometimes to be so bad is good. Is good. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I feel like this is so, I mean, and I expected nothing less from you just because it, you, you put your thoughts together and express them so well in all of these different uh, jobs of yours. But um, nice. so I, I feel like this has been really useful and it will be really useful for people listening. I wonder if you might be willing to try and distill some of this wisdom, imagining okay. a 21-year-old version of yourself in today's mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. and what advice you might give that person. Sure. Um, don't get arrested. Um, <laughs> Did you get arrested? Um, we can talk about that on okay. another podcast uh, of my many arrests. Um, don't get arrested, but um, also like there are going to be people who you encounter um, who 
probably are in an authoritative position, like a teacher or an advisor or a grown up. Um, and I understand that at age 21, you should probably be a grown up, but I still thought of myself as very much a very young person. But there are going to be people who you think are going to help you, uh, who are just going to criticize you, um, and not be helpful. And even though they are in a position of authority where they're supposed to be helping you, if they are criticizing you, like, don't work with them um, because there are plenty of people who are just as damaged and broken as you know you might feel and they just want to hurt you and, and cut you down and that's that's really bad and maybe that's just being socialized as a woman in America I have no idea but um you know I think the other thing that I would say and I was kind of saying this earlier is um don't be self-effacing to a point of being insufferable. Don't be self-deprecating. If somebody compliments you, don't say, eh, it sucked. Say, thank you very much. That means so much to me. Because if somebody's actually coming up to you and complimenting you, it's not because they're messing with your mind. And this is maybe some high-level paranoid thinking that I had to quiet. It's because they actually really like what you do. And when you say like, eh, you know, give it to Donovan, I don't care. Uh, like, they're just gonna be like, wow, what a bitch, you know, and not really appreciate that. And I don't think it's cute. And I don't think it's cool. And um, that is something that I would definitely say to a young person, because you don't believe in yourself. And it's so easy to just try to be funny, and try to be more authentic by being like, and I mean, maybe that's an indie pose, you know, maybe it's a Gen X thing. I don't know. But I definitely think that that would be something that I would advise anybody, especially my 21 year old self. God, that's such good advice. I've I've done however many, 130 or whatever of these interviews. And I feel like that's not really something that anyone has put their finger on, but it's it's practically ubiquitous in right. in what we do. And I feel like people think there's a nobility in that sort of self-effacing, self-deprecation. Right. And it's just so weird. And I I mean, and it's it's a hard one to break away from. But I think the second that you do, it becomes so liberating. And all of a sudden, like, you can just accept warmth and positive. And I know this is going to sound so new agey and dumb. <laughs> but it's like, it really does kind of, you know, like, fill you up with this kind of positive energy and that you can really float on for a couple of days. And then, you know, like I said, then you get the one bad tweet and you're like back to the baseline. So, you know, there's balance in the world, man. You just got to find it, but you got to kind of make it for yourself too. Well, and it's funny too, because any artistic transaction involves a level of narcissism or self-directed love or attention or whatever. And so it feeds into that if you let it. And and I just, I'm so grateful you pointed that out. That's really good. Oh, thanks. Oh man, all this stuff is so good, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your thoughts and, and, and congrats on the new record and the Thank next you. record. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate you inviting me to come on here. It's it's so fun to talk to you. I'm a huge fan. Congratulations on your recent record. Um, if anybody has not yet gone out and purchased it, I insist <laughs> that they do. Uh, but uh, yes, it's it's a huge honor. And um, and I, I do hope that everyone has walked away from this learning something uh, and, and feeling like they spent a good half hour hanging out. This is great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rhett. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or 
anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.